Hello Grace Fellowship. It is one of the most special times of the year. I think you'll agree, the holiday season, both Thanksgiving and Christmas, is a time that not only sparks wonder in the children among us, but it can really bring a sense of joy to every single one of us, no matter what our age or situation in life. Now what makes this season very special to me is that we're coming into the home stretch of our 2020 vision campaign. It's amazing to think that just about two and a half years ago, we started off on a marathon of a journey. Our goals were really clear. We wanted to expand our Half Moon campus to provide that congregation with a better ministry tool, especially for children and students. By God's amazing grace, that goal has been accomplished and the ministry continues to flourish at Half Moon. But our second priority was to turn our attention to the campus in Latham. This incredible congregation in Latham has been sort of like the mother, if you will, congregation that, that God has used to launch so many good things. But Latham too needs a better ministry tool. And our goal is to not only upgrade the facade, but to change several things about the interior of the Latham campus as well. Now, as we've continued to remind you, congregation, one of the most exciting pieces of this 2020 vision has been the humanitarian aid. And since the earliest days of the campaign, we've been able to provide vital assistance and, and life-giving care to people both locally and globally. We decided from the very beginning that for every dollar we spent on a building project, we would give 10% of that amount to humanitarian aid. It's been exciting to see what God has done. By the way, the latest project that I'm glad to tell you about today is, is one of our partners, Jezreel International. Just recently, we were able to give $12,000 to the Veterans Miracle Center at Jezreel to provide dozens of bed sets for veterans who've been experiencing housing insecurity. At Grace Fellowship, we love our veterans. These women and men who have sacrificed so much to faithfully serve their country. Thank you to every one of you who made this latest humanitarian gift a reality. Now here's my challenge for this month. I'm asking you to join me in finishing strong in this 2020 campaign. <laughs> I have a friend who recently ran a marathon just a couple of weeks ago. And when I asked, how did it go? He said, well, the first 18 miles were actually pretty easy. But he said, I kind of hated myself for those last several miles. My body was hurting. I was so exhausted. And I wondered, why did I get myself into this? You know, the hardest part of almost any journey can be those last few miles. That's where we are with this 2020 vision. There's only five months to go until the campaign as projected is complete. Let's finish this race strong together. Debbie and I, by God's grace, have been able already to finish the pledge we made. 
but we've decided to do more. We're convicted that this project in Latham, the facade and some interior elements is so important, we're going to increase our pledge by another 10% so we can give that much more to the campaign in these final crucial months. Maybe some of you would join us in that. I'd ask you to pray about it. Consider joining us and let's finish this race strong together. Amen. Let me say, I agree with that guy. I, I agree with that guy right there. Everything he said, I pretty much agree with it. Thank you so much for being in worship today and wherever you're worshiping, whether at Half Moon, Saratoga, Greenbush, Latham, we're so glad that you're here. Hey, let me ask you a question. How do you feel about work? You know that thing we call a job? Sometimes it's called a vocation. Some even make it sound spiritual and call it a calling. Whatever it is you do to kind of earn money. My question is, how do you feel about that and how highly motivated are you? Let's be honest. Some of us really don't like to work. To be brutally honest, we're downright lazy. Honestly, we will do just about anything we can to avoid work. But on the opposite extreme, I believe there are a number of us who are probably workaholics. It's not that we work to live. If we're really being honest about it, we probably more live to work. It's true. Work, our job, our vocation is like this obsession that we think about day and night. How do you feel about work? It's interesting to me that a lot is being said today about work-life balance. You read about it, you hear about it all the time, the talk shows are buzzing around this, you'll see blogs and articles, books written on this whole phenomenon of work-life balance. And people are curious about all of the problems that can be created when our work life and our life of rest or leisure, the things we do at other times when we're not working, when those aren't in proper balance, it can lead to all kinds of problems. Well, here's what's interesting to me. The Bible vigorously encourages both. Did you know that? Did you know that you can hardly find a book that speaks more strongly and even glowingly about the virtues of good hard work? The Bible says things like this. As Paul spoke to the church at Thessalonica, he said, when I was with you, I used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Wow, work was a pretty high priority. In Proverbs 6, it talks about how we're to be industrious, and it, it uses the ant as an example of how industrious we're to be as the ant works feverishly to prepare for the future. The Bible says even in the Ten Commandments, six days you shall labor and do all your work. The Bible really highlights the importance of honest work. 
But I'm also struck by the fact that the Bible says there's a time to rest. We are commanded by God to observe some downtime, what Scripture calls Sabbath. You work, but you also observe at least one day where you stop working, where you just quit trying to get ahead. And you engage that day in activities that replenish and renew you. Now, now here's the deal. Here's the deal. Life, at its best, ought to be a balanced rhythm. A balanced rhythm of work and rest and work and rest and work and rest. When it's done that, that way and when we understand the reasons for work, oh, it can be a wonderful thing. But as we're going to learn today, as we continue in our study of Ecclesiastes, when we don't understand the place of work in life and we make more of it, when we even make an idol of it, it can lead to some very, very discouraging outcomes. So let's go on the journey together. I first of all want to talk to you about this whole thing of in what does work often result? Because this man, Solomon, who was on a journey looking for a meaningful life, and he was searching life under the sun. For those of you who may be new, I need to tell you this quickly or you'll be very confused. His whole idea is life at the end of your nose. Life lived from a purely empirical, purely humanistic point of view. No God factored into the equation. No afterlife. No rewards. That's the kind of life he's been searching in, and he comes to some pretty discouraging conclusions. First of all, he says there's often a sense of futility in our work. Futility. Verse 3 of chapter 1 reads, What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? And then he answers that question just a bit later. Chapter 2, verse 10, My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now, it's discouraging to conclude that a work life can be futile when many of us spend 12 years going to school in our public school system or private school or whatever we end up doing, homeschooling. And then many of us go and spend about four more years pursuing a bachelor's degree, and then some go beyond that and pursue master's degrees in various things and doctoral degrees. Why do we do that? We do it so we can earn money, so we can have a home and clothes and food and get a car, so we can go to work, so we can get money to buy a home and clothes and food and a car, so we can go to work. So we can get money to buy a home and clothes and food and car. And it's this sort of meaningless cycle under the sun that ends up feeling very, very futile, very futilistic. I mean, did you ever boil it down and think about how much time you spend at work? In a typical 75-year lifespan, and I realize it's increasing a little bit all the time, especially for women, and the average lifespan is actually beyond that now, particularly for women. 
But in a 75-year lifespan, have you ever boiled it down and see how much time you spend doing various things? If you spend eight hours a night on average sleeping, guess what? You're spending 25 years sleeping. Think about that. 25 years, a full third of your time. What a waste, right? What a waste. No, we need good sleep. But then there are other curious things. Someone has figured out, and obviously you have to plug some numbers in to get these outcomes, but someone has figured out that through various surveys and studies, and you can look these up online just as well as I did, and I just kind of took the median of these, you spend up to five years of your life just eating. Think about that. Five years. Five whole years just eating. Here's a fun one. We spend two years and four months of our life on the toilet. Did you know that? Isn't that fun? That's why it's so important you have some good reading material in your home. Yeah. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker for our subject today. In all these breakdowns of how we spend our time, most people spend at least 10 full years of their life working. Imagine that. And if it's all futile, oh my goodness, how discouraging. He goes on in chapter 2. For a man or, or a woman may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then he must leave all he owns to someone who's not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? This is just oozing with a sense of futility and meaninglessness. But then he further goes on to say there's often fatigue caused by work. I read in chapter 10, verse 15, a fool's work wearies him. He does not know the way to town. Now that phrase, he does not know the way to town, is like us saying today, the fool would get lost even if you put him on an escalator. It's a statement that means he's just kind of going through the motions. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know why he's doing it. He's just worn out and weary. He's living an unexamined life without much, much purpose or intentionality. And then we read in chapter 1, all things are wearisome. More than one can say. What a dreary statement, huh? Don't hang that one up in your house, please. I mean, that is so negative. But with life under the sun, that's kind of what you're left with. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will, will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. So he's describing this life of work that is this relentless monotony. You've watched it, haven't you? Maybe you've lived that life. When you're a kid, you get up in the morning, you eat your cereal. What do you eat? You count chocula or something, Fruit Loops, I don't know. You eat your count chocula, you go to school, you study, you come home, hopefully you play a little bit, maybe you do a little homework, a little project, maybe you watch a little show on your computer, Interact with your family a little bit. You go to bed, you get up, you eat your Count Chocula again and do it all over again. But then you get a little older and you go to high school and now you've graduated to Cheerios. 
You get up and you eat your Cheerios. You go to school, you interact with your friends, you learn a little bit. You come home, but there's really no time for play now. You've got some pretty serious homework to do, and then you Snapchat with your friends, and then you call some of them, and then you watch some things on your computer, and then you talk on your phone a little bit, and hopefully interact with your family a little bit, go to bed, get up, eat your Cheerios, and do it all over again. But then you get out of school, and now you're more sophisticated. You get your first job. And you're actually beginning to feel a little crunchy. You like to go hiking with your friends on the weekend. And so now you're eating muesli. It's a more sophisticated cereal. And you eat your muesli. And you go to work and you do your job. But you really wish you were back in school again because work is really hard. And it's drudgery. And you come home and you want to take a nap because you're tired. And you go to bed and you get up and eat your muesli. And you do it all over again. And then you get married. And now you get up and eat your special K. <laughs> and you go to work. And work is really hard because whoever said two can live as cheaply as one ought to be hung. I mean, it is just not true. And so you work so hard and work so hard. And then a baby comes along. And now it's like you feel like you need to work two jobs. And you get up and you eat your special K. And then finally you get old. And then you eat your olive bran in the morning. And I talk to so many retired people who are a little bit older, and they go, I don't know what I do all day, but I'm busy all the time. I never knew that retirement could be so busy. And so now you're not only eating your all brand, but you're throwing in some prunes with it, you know. And you go through your day, and you go to bed at night, and you get up, and you eat your all brand all over again, and your prunes, and then you die. What a waste of all brand. There's this futility at all and you scratch your head as you look at this and you go what's the point of all of this where is it going you're so fatigued by it all and you feel like a hamster on a wheel running and running and you're perspiring and you're fatigued but you get off exactly where you got on and so there's this balancing act if you don't work enough you don't have enough and you kind of are starved or you don't have money to buy the things you need. If you work too much, you have family problems, marital problems, or you burn out. And that's why in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Can I tell you the biggest fallacy in the world? And this verse really points it out. We think that the more we have, the more we'll be satisfied in life. Almost the opposite is true. The more we have, the more we feel we have to ensure and protect and worry about and look after. And the more we're afraid we're going to lose it. And so the harder we work to keep it. And the very thing we thought would bring us contentment actually brings more anxiety. That's why the verse said, the person who has more, this person who's a little wealthier, their abundance permits them no sleep because they're all torn up, wondering, Am I, I, are my investments going to do well? Is somebody going to sue me and try to rob me of all these things? And we lose our sense of peace. 
So there's a sense of futility, there's a sense of fatigue, but there's another thing he says. There may be a sense of downright failure in your work. Chapter 5 reads, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? In other words, you're going to go out the, exactly the way you came in. You were born with nothing. You're going to die with nothing. This verse reminds us we cannot take it with us. Debbie and I recently watched with interest a documentary about Bill and Melinda Gates and how they're spending their time these days, particularly with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Bill Gates recently observed his 64th birthday. He's the day before my birthday. He was 64 years old just a couple weeks ago, October the 28th, okay? And Bill Gates is now the third wealthiest person in the world. Jeffrey Bezos is number one of Amazon. A French gentleman, Bernard Arnault, is number two. And Bill Gates comes in number three at $108 billion. That's a lot of money. But do you know how, you know how much Bill Gates is going to leave behind when he dies? He is going to leave behind exactly as much as I'm going to leave behind. You didn't know I was that loaded, did you? <laughs> Bill Gates, Jeffrey Bezos, Bernard Arnault is gonna, are all going to leave behind exactly what I'm going to leave behind. Everything. In fact, if you want to make yourself really feel good, remind yourself that you're going to leave behind exactly what Warren Buffett Jeffrey Bezos, Bill Gates, any other rich people you want to put on your list are going to leave behind. You're going to leave behind everything, and so are they. He says here, there's nothing I can take with me. So when I looked at that, life under the sun, no afterlife, no reward, nothing, it just all ends here. Chapter 2, verse 17, so I hated life. Of course you would. Of course you would hate life if that's all there is. Why wouldn't you hate it? It's pathetic. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I'm the hamster on the wheel, running, running, faster, faster, futile, fatigued, failing, getting off the same place I got on. What's missing in this formula? You see, that whole thing would change if there was just hope inserted into the formula. Years ago, one of my mentors, a man named Charlie Riggs, introduced me to this book. I'm going to introduce you to it if you've never read it. It's by a guy named Viktor Frankl. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. It was first published in 1945, I believe, right at the end of World War II. Let me quickly tell you the story, and this is all about hope. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian Jew studying to be a psychiatrist in the 1930s, a pretty new field in that day. And 
in his very first medical assignment, being trained as a, a doctor, he was working with these very depressed, very suicidal patients. And he said that as he talked to them, got to know their story and all that, every single one of these deeply depressed, suicidal patients blamed the past on their reason for wanting to end their life. Why do you not want to live because of what that person did to me or because of what happened back then in the past? But Viktor Frankl said he came to realize, look, I know people with a lot worse past than you and they want to live. I know people who have had things happen, with all due respect, he's thinking this to himself, a lot worse than what you've gone through, but they're not suicidal. And he came to realize that while his patients blamed it on their past, the problem wasn't their past, the problem was their future. They had no sense of hope for the future. And so we created a whole therapy around that called Logotherapy, and the book talks about that which is all about what are you living for? What is your hope? What is your life about? It's a very intriguing book. But let me tell you a little bit more. As a Jewish person, both he, his father, his mother, his brother, and his new wife, they had just gotten married, were all sent to concentration camps. Viktor Frankl himself spent time in Auschwitz and Dachau. Dachau. And... All of his family, all those most precious, precious to him died. And somehow he survived. And in this book, Man's Search for Meaning, he tells all about the horrors of that. It's just riveting stuff. And then the last part of the book talks about his conclusions that he has come to based on all these experiences. And so many people were dying in the gas ovens, but he says many people just died like through the night. They just wouldn't wake up the next morning. And we realized as we shook them, oh, they're dead. They didn't wake up. They didn't make it. He concluded that the thing that kept so many people alive was their sense of hope. They talked about what they were going to do when the war was over, when they were out of this prison camp. And they would describe in detail the beautiful meals they would share together and what they would serve each other as they visited each other's homes. And that, that kept their hope alive. And he talks about one man in the book who had a dream. And this was February when he had the dream. And in the dream, there was some man. He couldn't identify the person, but someone was there. And he asked, the man said, look, I'll tell you anything you want to know. And he asked the man in his dream, when will I be out of here? When will I be released and free? When will the war be over for me? And the man in the dream told him, the war will be over for you on March the 31st. Now, this was in February. And Viktor Frankl says for the coming weeks, the weeks after that dream, this man had a new energy. He had a spring in his step and a glint in his eye. He was effervescent. He would go around saying, March the 31st, I'm a free man. Hope had made all the difference. But then about mid-March, when it was clear the war wasn't going to be over and there was no news of any kind of release from the prison camp, the man began to get sick. On March the 29th, he became desperately ill. On March the 30th, he went into a coma. And on March the 31st, he died. Now, on his report... They said he died of typhus, but Frankel says he died of no hope. Because you can live without a lot of things, but the one thing you cannot live without 
is hope. You cannot live without a sense of hope for your future. And so one final word about Frankel before we dive back into the text. After the war, he set up his own practice and he became a quite respected psychiatrist. He traveled far and wide and lectured, had an amazing practice, but he would shock his patients at times with the question he asked. He would ask his depressed, suicidal patients, why don't you commit suicide? That's not a question you want your doctor to ask you, I don't think. But he said it was their answer to that question that let me know the key to their life. And they would usually say, well, it's because of my spouse. Or it's because of my children or my grandchildren. It's because I still want to do this or I still want to go there. And he said that answer gave me the key to that person's life. It's what gave them hope. So let me ask you today. Where does your hope lie? What does it hinge on? Do you find life to be the hamster on the wheel experience like he's describing here in Ecclesiastes? Futile, fatiguing. You feel like you're failing all the time. Life is going nowhere. I'm telling you, it doesn't have to be like that. You can have a spring in your step and a joy in your soul not based upon some ephemeral dream but based upon the reality of the risen Jesus Christ, who said, because I live, you shall live also. But now let's wrap this up. I want us to ask another question. Why should we work? And in these moments we have remaining, I want to quickly, quickly touch on three reasons that a lot of people work so hard. And then I want to end with a tremendous word of encouragement about how we as followers of Jesus can view all of this. So here we go. The first reason that a lot of people work is we work for the almighty dollar itself. We just work for more and more money. Chapter 10, verse 19. A feast is made for laughter and wine makes life merry, but money's the answer for everything. Boy, that's philosophy today, isn't it? Money's the answer for everything. Get all you can. Can all you get, sit on the can, spoil the rest, money, money, money. Madonna sang in the 80s, I'm living in a material world, and I am a material girl. Why do people go after money? It gives freedom and flexibility and options and a sense of power to a lot of people. That's why you see that bumper sticker around all over the place. The one who dies with the most toys wins. Boy, that's a mantra for our age. It's a materialistic world. And the idea is, if I could just get more money, then somehow my life will be satisfying and empowered. But what people sadly discover, as Solomon so eloquently puts it in chapter 5, is whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. We think we'll be satisfied, but we're not. It is so wrenchingly awful to hear these stories of people winning the lottery and living this whirlwind of a life for two or three years, and then you see them and it's all gone, and they're now buying a lottery ticket again every week, trying to get back, trying to get back, trying to get back to that place again. 
chapter 6, verse 7 says, All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. So, one reason we can work is for the almighty dollar itself. We can chase after more money. But a second reason is we can work to keep up with the Joneses. Now, that's a phrase in our culture. I'll explain it in a moment. If you're from a different culture, I want you to understand what that means. Chapter 4, verse 4. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy. There's the key phrase. Envy, envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So Solomon says, look, you can work out of this envy of your neighbors to try to keep up with them. If they get an upgrade on the house, you got to get an upgrade that's just as spectacular or better. If they get a new car, you got to get a new car. If they're wearing the finest style of clothes, you got to get clothes just like that. Keeping up with the Joneses is spending money you don't have on things you don't need to impress people you don't even like. That is not a worthy reason to work. Third, we can work to leave a financial legacy. Chapter 4, verse 8, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. In other words, he says, you know, if I had a a, a son or a brother or a close relative who inherited all this, the the, the implication is then it it wouldn't be meaningless, this work I'm doing. The implication here, if you had a son or a daughter, someone you could pass this on to, at least you could give it to your kids. But be careful about finding that to be, in and of itself, a worthy reason. Because he says elsewhere, in another passage, I've seen a sad thing. A man earns money and then dies. He passes it to his child, and his child hasn't earned it, so it's just slush money for them. And they spend it on these utterly ridiculous things and destroy themselves in the process, and you've seen that happen, haven't you, over and over again when people sometimes inherit money that they didn't really work for. Winston Churchill was one of the most quotable figures in history. He said these wise and witty things, and once he made the statement, quote, parents should not leave their children money, they should leave them horses. Now, we scratch our heads at that, But when he wrote that in the 1920s, what he meant was, don't leave them cash, leave them some way that they can make money. Leave them a skill set, leave them a good education, leave them a good example, leave them an example of character. Now, I don't know how you feel about this man Solomon and his journey, but to me, He's really good at deconstructing, but he's really pathetic at reconstructing. Would you agree? I mean, he just tears down and tears down and shows all that's wrong with the world. He's good at deconstruction. He's pretty pitiful at reconstruction until the end. And I just want to give a little news blurb. In the coming couple of weeks, we're going to begin to see as he turns the corner, and we're going to begin to see the glimmer of hope that he finds in life. 
But if you're still with me and not too depressed already, this is a tough book. I want you to know it doesn't have to be this way. Thank God there's a much better way than just life under the sun. So I want to end today with a very encouraging note, I hope, especially for those who are faithful, committed followers of Jesus Christ. There's something else we can work for. We can work for food that does not spoil and endures to eternal life. And that is a statement pretty much right out of John's gospel, chapter 6, verse 27. Look at this verse with me, please. This is Jesus talking. Pretty good authority. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Now, what does Jesus mean? Don't work for food. That, does he mean we don't need to earn a living? No, no, no. That's not what he means. He knows we need to do that. He knows we have financial needs and responsibilities, and we've got bills to pay. He's saying that our life focus should not be those kinds of things. If you only work for food that spoils, you'll never be satisfied. Satisfaction comes when you put the Lord Jesus Christ into the center of your life and everything else revolves around him. He becomes your main agenda. No matter how you're making a living. Can I tell you one of the most exciting things to me about Grace Fellowship Church? I could go on for hours. But this is one of the top most exciting things to me about this church. We have scores and scores and scores of men and women of all ages, of all ages, who understand that they are missionaries of the Lord Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as doctors, CEOs, school teachers, nurses, homemakers, welders, technicians, computer programmers, pilots, politicians, the list goes on and on and on. Missionaries for the Lord Jesus Christ carefully disguised as something else. And they represent Jesus full time no matter what their occupation, no matter how they earn a living and put food on the table. That's what Jesus has called us to. I love Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does that mean? Does that mean, hey, I'm just making this presentation today in Jesus' name. Does that mean you've got to add that to everything? Hey, have a great day in Jesus' name. Is that, is that what that means? No, 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 no. You understand that you're representing him and living in his authority. And... You're doing everything you do for his glory. Another great verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Pretty good filter for everything you do. Hey, we're going to go on this trip. Can you do it for the glory of God? Hey, we're going to go see this movie. Can you do it for the glory of God? Hey, we're going to go hang out here with these friends. Are you doing that for the glory of God? Hey, I'm going to go... You know, on this new endeavor, can you do it for the glory of God? Hey, I'm going to take this new job. Can you do it for the glory of God? That becomes the filter. And when that becomes the filter, trust me, 
it impacts your integrity. It impacts when you get to work and what attitude you arrive with. It impacts your conversation around the water cooler. It impacts everything we do. Here's a verse, a couple of verses. I wish that every genuine Jesus follower would keep with them at all times whenever they're out in the workplace. Here it is. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord, not for men. Some of you have bosses. <clears throat> we, we wouldn't even say in church the words that you have for them, right? Amen? They drive you crazy. It is everything you can do to get up every day and go to that job. You got to get your mind off them as your boss. Yeah, yeah, they're one of your boss, but your real boss is Jesus. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart is working for the Lord, not for any man or woman, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. When we live life that way, understanding that we're really doing it for him, oh my goodness. You can deal with anything this crazy, broken world throws at you. So here's my final challenge. Please, please, don't live your life purely under the sun. Understand there's a whole lot more than just life down here. And everything you do for the Lord Jesus Christ, it has eternal repercussions. It has eternal consequences to it. Everything matters. Jesus put it like this. Even if you give a cup of cold water in my name, you will by no means lose your reward. Let's live for the glory of God. Let's not be the hamster on the wheel. Let's do everything we do in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this study through Ecclesiastes. It really gets right down to where we live, down to where we work. Thank you for what we're learning together. And I pray that these principles, the principles from your word, the principles straight from Jesus' lips, I pray that these would guide our lives today. May we never get caught up in the sort of cynicism and skepticism and discouragement of life as a hamster on the wheel. Let us remember this is going somewhere and everything we do and say has consequences and we will be accountable. I thank you, Lord, that we will be rewarded as we live faithfully for you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.